Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Just to get started, a quick history of the Feast of the Visitation. It is quite late in its development, developed in the West, in the Roman Church, uh, as early, we can say, as the, the 13th century, came into the Roman Church through the Order of St. Francis, the Franciscans, um, and then spread throughout the West, and was adopted uh, into the Roman calendar in the 14th, late 14th century by Pope Urban VI. Among the Eastern Christians, among the Orthodox, it was even later brought into practice, first in Jerusalem, in a monastery in Jerusalem, in the mid-19th century. So you say, well, geez, that's quite late. You know, the thing is that as we meditate upon these mysteries of our Lord and the mysteries of Our Lady, and we come to a fuller understanding of them, we come also to a fuller appreciation of them. And so we bring these things as we come to understand them more fully to the attention of the faithful. And it's that attention of the faith, that desire of the faithful, which ends up building monasteries, uh, establishing devotions, and ultimately establishing feast days within the church. So this is a good example of that. I want to begin by just turning our Bibles open to the text itself in Luke. We're going to go ahead and read the text just to familiarize ourselves. I am not going to spend the majority of my time tonight making comments, only because the text itself is so rich. We have a lot of Old Testament references to get to, and a lot of quotations from the saints that I want to be able to share with you. And so uh, let's just begin in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke. Okay, chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, full of grace. But she was greatly troubled at this thing and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. You'll remember contextualizing this text that the angel had already appeared to Zechariah while he was ministering in the temple and he doubted and he was struck dumb. Okay, you'll remember that text in the prophecy of the birth of John the Baptist. We'll skip down then to verse 39. Verse 39. And in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a city of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has regarded the low estate of His handmaid. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their heart. He has put down the mighty from their thrones, and has exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has filled his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his posterity forever." And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. As I was reading that text, it just occurred to me that that was a text that I was brought up with because as my dad would pray the liturgy of the hours, I remember him always reciting that text while I was outside playing. He would come out and say the liturgy of the hours outside. It's a beautiful memory for me. The um, Second Vatican Council and its text on the church says, "...the sacred writings of the Old and New Testament, as well as venerable tradition, show that the role of Mary our Savior in the plan of salvation is an ever clearer light 
and call our attention to it. The books of the Old Testament describe the history of salvation by which the coming of Christ into the world was slowly prepared. The earliest documents, as they are read in the church and are understood in the light of a further and fuller revelation, bring the figure of a woman, mother of the Redeemer, into gradually clearer light. Considered in this light, she is already prophetically foreshadowed, and this is the the most important point, she's already prophetically foreshadowed in the promise of victory over the serpent, which was given to our first parents after their fall into sin. Likewise, she is the virgin who shall conceive and bear a son, whose name shall be called Emmanuel from the prophet Isaiah. She stands out among the poor and humble of the Lord who confidently hope for and receive salvation from Him. You remember the poor that the Lord saved during the Babylonian exile. One of the reasons for the Babylonian exile was that the Jews would refuse to honor the year of release and to release the slaves and the debt. They refused to do that. And so God says, okay, you will refuse to honor the law. You will then become slaves in a foreign land. And those who were your slaves will be saved and will come to rest. And so there is a group of poor that come to Mount Sion. They were the vineyard keepers, the gardeners. They lived there on Mount Sion during the Babylonian exile. And that's what this is talking about. She stands out among the poor and humble of the Lord who confidently hope for and receive salvation from Him. After a long period of waiting, the times are fulfilled in her, the exalted daughter of Sion, the daughter of Sion, those people that are living there. And the new plan of salvation is established when the Son of God has taken human nature from her, that he might in the mysteries of his flesh free man from sin. The Father of mercies willed that the incarnation should be preceded by assent on the part of the predestined mother, so that just as a woman had a share in bringing about death, speaking of Eve, so also a woman should contribute to life. I bring this text up because I think it shows well what we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke in this text. That Mary is not one who stands alone. And her words are not to be understood apart from the Old Testament and apart from the story of salvation history. And in fact, to understand her correctly, we have to understand her as... Vatican II is saying, as the fulfillment, as that coming to light, as the clear light shines, to understand the role of the woman in the place of our salvation. And so we're going to be looking at a number of Old Testament texts tonight to be able to understand Mary better. And so I have a few words to say about the practice of typology. Typology. Typology is simply the looking to the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, to see the working of God, and from that working of God, how He did things in the past, we will come to understand how He will do things in the future. But I want to go further, and I want to read you a quotation from Cardinal Jean Danielou that I think might help this out a little bit. He says, That the realities of Old Testament are figures of those of the New is one of the principles of biblical theology. This science of similitudes between the two Testaments is called typology. And then he's going to go ahead and clarify his remarks. And he goes on to speak about the sacraments in this way, saying that God prepared beautifully in the Old Testament for the fulfillment that He revealed in the New Testament, but that fulfillment in the New Testament was further perfected in the revelation of the church. And that revelation of the church and the sacraments and our life as a faith community will then be perfected and brought to its fullness at the end of time. So that the Eucharist itself becomes a type or a foreshadowing of the ultimate communion with God when the veil of bread and wine will be lifted and we will behold Him face to face and come into direct communion with Him. He says, the sacraments carry on in our midst the memory of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. For example, and pay close attention to this because it has everything to do with what we're talking about about Mary. The flood, the passion of Christ... And our baptism show us the same divine activity, the same divine activity as carried out in three different eras of sacred history. And these three phases of God's action are all ordered to the judgment at the end of time. The same divine activity he sees in the flood, 
in the passion of Christ as He descends and is buried over, covered over in the tomb? As Noah came forth from the ark to worship God, so Christ comes forth from the tomb to stand before the face of God, man fully restored in the image and likeness of God. Similarly, we go into the baptismal font. We are buried in the baptismal font and we rise again to newness of life, as St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6. But notice, these are not just coincidences. They're not just nice similarities that we can look at in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. No, Cardinal Jean Danielou says, it is the revelation of the same divine activity. And that same divine activity is the seed, the kernel of our faith, the foundation of our faith, which is simply that God wants to share His life with us. And when God wants to share His life with us, and when He wants to save us from death, then the revelation of that salvific action looks the same. It looks similar. And so what was going on in the life of Eve, and as we will see in the life of Jael or in the life of Judith, is the same thing taking place, made incarnate in the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary, of the Mother of God. And through seeing this same divine activity in the Old Testament, we come to better fully understand that same divine activity in the New Testament. And when we understand that, then we will understand what God wants for each one of us. For that salvation which He gave to the Mother of God, He wants for you and for me. Okay? Now, I'm way off my notes. But I think I've got pretty much what I wanted to say there. Good enough. Let's look then at Luke Chapter 1, verse 26. And we're going to walk through this text. And then again, we're going to be looking back at the Old Testament. And I ask you before we ever turn to the Old Testament, please do not get frustrated. Please do not get embarrassed. I'm not going to ask you to read out loud. I will not know whether you actually found Judith or not. But try. Because if you don't try, you won't succeed, right? That's what they told us when we were in first grade. So if you don't try, you won't succeed as Catholics, and some maybe some non-Catholics with us tonight, we all have to be reading the Scriptures more and becoming more familiar with the sacred Scriptures. And if you didn't bring your Bible, you've got to start bringing your Bible with you everywhere you go. Okay. Chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. I'm going to just start here with a couple of points which hopefully will contextualize our time together tonight before we actually get to the time of the visitation, which we'll have plenty of things to say about that. But I I found this beautiful quote from St. Epiphanius that I wanted to share with you. What shall I tell, or what proclaim, about the excellence of the Holy Virgin. God alone accepted, she is superior to all beings. By nature, she is more beautiful than the cherubim and seraphim and all the angelic hosts. Not all the voices of heaven can praise her sufficiently, not even the angelic choir. O blessed Virgin, pure dove and heavenly spouse, Mary, heaven, tabernacle, and throne of divinity. You have Christ, the blazing Son of heaven and earth, brilliant cloud. You have brought Christ down like glowing lightning upon the earth. Hail, full of grace, gate of heaven, of whom the prophet sings openly in his canticle. An enclosed garden is my sister, my spouse, an enclosed garden, a sealed fountain. If you've never read St. Epiphanius, I would recommend that you jot his name down because he's a beautiful poet. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. 
And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the Holy Spirit shall overshadow you. I want to look at a few verses to kind of get Luke's theme here. And I want you to look back at chapter 1, verse 15. This is speaking of John the Baptist. And he will be great before the Lord, and he shall drink no wine nor strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 28, which we just read, Hail, full of grace. Obviously, grace is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the life of God within us. Again, as we just read in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Turn to verse 41. Verse 41, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 67, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Are we getting a theme going? I think so. Chapter 2, verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And in chapter 3, verse 21, you know the text well of the baptism of our Lord and the descent of the Holy Spirit. I point this out to you because you'll know also that Luke, the evangelist, by tradition, wrote Acts of the Apostles. And it is in Acts of the Apostles that we learn about what great giving of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, the Feast of Pentecost, which we just celebrated. Okay? Luke is focused on the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's important for us to realize that when you get a repetition of a theme or a word like that in Scripture, pay attention and stop and ask yourself, why? Why is it that this author is telling us this over and over and over again? And there is a reason, because he wants us to interpret the text not simply as history, but as salvation history. Not simply as the work of man, but of the work of God. And so as we look at this text of the visitation, I think we do well to focus, to ask ourselves, what is going on behind the words? What does Luke want us to see in this story, which could otherwise, to your average man, be simply, well, maybe a fanciful tale, but at least a story of history, something that happened. It is that, but it is so much more than that. Because behind the human people that we are meeting, we find the working of God. And there we will discover that same divine activity that Cardinal Jean Daniel Lu talked about. Okay? We're going to work now down the text from verse 36. So chapter 1, verse 36. Well, let's start at verse 35 to contextualize. And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived. The angel offers this as proof to the mother of God. Right? And she says, I'm not married. How can I have a child? How is it possible? Not that she doubts the power of God, but how is this possible? And the angel says, Look, Mary, what was thought impossible for man is possible for God. And the one who you thought could not have a child has now become pregnant. Elizabeth becomes the apology, the evidence the defense that the angel offers. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This takes us to the first text we need to look at because those words... For nothing is impossible with God, must have for Mary, meditating upon the sacred scriptures, called forth a particular story in the Old Testament. And the story is found in the book of Genesis.
the book of Genesis. So go ahead and keep your hand in the Gospel of Luke because we're going to be turning back and forth. But go ahead and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 18. You remember the story of Abraham, our father in the faith, and of Sarah. And remember, if you look at chapter 18, verse 12, after it was announced that she would have a child, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have grown old, and my husband is old, huh? Elizabeth was old also, and her husband was old. Shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I bear a child now that I am old? Is anything impossible for God? Is anything too hard for God? Huh? The same words that the angel spoke to Mary. That the barren one, the old one, who was thought to be impossible for her to bear children, has now become pregnant. So Elizabeth becomes, in some sense, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Sarah. And Mary now meditates upon that text. It's very important as we look back at these texts, because these are the things that I think Mary must have been meditating upon as she spent a few days walking from Nazareth to visit her cousin. And we're going to look at some pictures of how far that is and the distance and so forth. But imagine, she has time to meditate upon these words of the angel. And she must have, each word, huh? Is anything impossible for God? And that, that line, that, that phrase would have come forward to her. To understand her cousin Elizabeth as the new Sarah. And Elizabeth's husband as the new Abraham. Isn't that beautiful? Okay. Another text, while we're there, which some have pointed to in Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. As we read, you remember, John the Baptist leapt in the womb of Elizabeth. And we'll talk about that quite a bit. But just while we're here in Genesis, I wanted to take you right to a text that uses the exact same, in the Greek at least, the exact same word. And it's the story of Rebekah, who in chapter 25, verse 21, says... And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Huh? You think Mary was also possibly thinking of Rebekah at this time. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled. It's the same word that, that Luke uses for leapt in the womb of Elizabeth. Huh? Struggled with his brother. The two brothers struggled. You remember? And which one won out, the older or the younger? Yeah, the younger one out. And so similarly, as Christ, as Jesus comes in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary to visit Elizabeth, and the babe leaps in her womb, John the Baptist, who is older, will become subject to him who is younger. Okay? So some of the scholars have pointed that out. I think it's an interesting, interesting thing to note. Let's go back to the Gospel of Luke, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to your word. And the angel immediately departed from her. As soon as Mary makes her act of submission in obedience to God, her act of faith, God the Word becomes incarnate in her womb. And at that moment, notice, the angel departs because she who is lowly has now been exalted because of her son, and the angel in humility departs from her. One commentary says, Though given a sign which she had yet to verify, the sign being Elizabeth, though given a sign which she had yet to verify that this message was from God, Mary was left in darkness as to its full meaning and consequences. Her faith was stronger than that of any other believer because she was more fully consecrated to the overwhelming presence of God. She replied to the angel, I am still the handmaid of the Lord, with words whose very grammar breathed deferential politeness. She added, Please, let it be done unto me according to your word. And at that very moment, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The angel departed from her, who is now most truly worthy of her name, the exalted one, for she had become the queen of the angels and the mother of God. Notice here the difference between Mary's faith and the result and Zechariah's lack of faith and the result. Mary will now be the one who proclaims the glory of God 
Zechariah is struck mute. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the city of Judea. And it's that text that I think it's important for us to consider. What was she thinking of during that time? You'll see, I have a little slide here for you of the Holy Land. You'll see way up here, huh? the city of Nazareth. That little blue spot I cut it off is the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so it's on the southern tip to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And if you come down here through the Jordan Valley, this is all really desert throughout here. And you come to Jerusalem. And she comes to the hill country of Jerusalem, of Judea, to a town called by tradition Ein Kerem, which is west, five miles west, west of Jerusalem. It's like right there, okay? Bethlehem is, I think, basically the same distance. Maybe Ein Kerem is even closer. Okay? So she walked all the way. So I tell you guys oftentimes, it's not too far to come to the Institute of Catholic Culture. <laughs> because Mary made this journey twice while she was pregnant. About 70 miles. Yeah, I've, I actually looked it up and it said 120 miles. I just was there and drove that distance. It's just a phenomenal, phenomenal journey down the Jordan River in that desert. And you can imagine Mary making her way in this place of peace where there was no distraction. And how she must have been meditating upon those words of the angel. And considering the Old Testament references, because the greeting would have brought forth for this whole story of salvation history, which she was now to become an inheritor of, a participant in, the fulfillment of. And it's those words then that become the foundation, the angel's greeting, which become the foundation of her Magnificat. The next text in verse 41. Well, we'll go to 39. In those days Mary arose and went to the haste of the whole country into the city of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Look back for a second at verse 15 about John the Baptist. And he will be great before the Lord... And he shall drink no wine nor strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So the text tells us that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, but we know also by extension that John was also filled with the Holy Spirit. St. John Chrysostom says, See how new and how wonderful this mystery is. He has not yet left the womb, but he speaks by leaping. He is not yet allowed to cry out, but he makes himself heard by his actions. He has not yet seen the light, but he points out the sun. S-U-N, the sun. He has not yet been born, and he is keen to act as the precursor. The Lord is present, so he cannot contain himself or wait for nature to run its course. He wants to break out of the prison of his mother's womb, and he makes sure he witnesses to the fact that the Savior is about to come. It is at this moment that the Scriptures tell us that John the Baptist was filled with grace. Was filled with grace. And so the tradition of the church says that John the Baptist with our Lord and our Lady was the only one, the only ones, who were born, born without original sin. Huh? Cleansed in the womb of Elizabeth from all sin, being filled up with the Holy Spirit, he was born, not conceived, not conceived, but born without original sin. And this is the reason why the church has traditionally celebrated his feast day, not on the day of his death, as she does with all of the saints, but on the day of his birth, because he came into the world cleansed from sin. Isn't that beautiful? Some say he was baptized in the womb of Elizabeth. Verse 42. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. As I was thinking about our time together tonight, because I think oftentimes we hear those words and think the next word, blessed for your womb, Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother of God, and so forth. And the words become, the words become a repetition simply of the words of Elizabeth without any content as to why Elizabeth was saying this, what Luke was trying to get out 
by putting these words down for us. And it's only then that we seek to understand what Elizabeth was really saying that I think our meditation upon this text can come alive and go from simple piety to true devotion. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Notice that verse 42, it was in verse 41 that Mary came to the presence of Elizabeth, and the scriptures say she was filled with the Holy Spirit. It was at that moment that sin was destroyed, and the grace of God descended into her soul and into that of her son. And in response to that action, she says, Blessed are you among women. Blessed are you among women. There are two and only two other times in the entire Bible that that phrase is used. Did you know that? You thought it was only used about Mary. But no, it's used about two other wonderful women in the Old Testament. And here we get to have a lot of fun. Because it just so happens that these two women bring about my two favorite stories in the entire Bible. And before preparing for this tonight, I didn't know this, so I was very excited to find out. The first one is in the book of Judges, chapter 5. Judges, chapter 5. And we're going to take a few minutes, and I'm going to tell you the story. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but if you're taking notes, you're going to want to write this down. Judges, chapter 5, you're going to want to read the whole story. As I said, I was just in the Holy Land, and I was in the place where this story took place. Because this story took place at the bottom of Mount Tabor, where our Lord was transfigured. There was a great battle. There's a great valley at the base of that mountain. And it's in that valley that most of the great battles of salvation history took place. When you see it, for the the guys at least, it is a valley made... It's a battlefield. It's just perfect for the battlefields of salvation history. In fact, it's that valley, at the head of that valley, where the city of Megiddo, where John tells us in the book of Revelation, the final battle will take place. Okay? It's a huge plain that opens up underneath Mount Tabor. And this is the story, the great story of the prophet Deborah. Verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. Okay, so there's this guy, the king of the Canaanites, living up north in the city of Hazor, which is kind of overlooking also this plain. And he's got a military leader named Sisera. Okay, and Sisera is going to go to battle against the Israelites. They end up conquering them. And God is going to restore the people. So you look at verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidath, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. And she calls out one of the men, one of the Israelites, and says, you're going to lead the Israelite army against Sisera to destroy his army and restore the people of God. And the guy's name is Barak. And Barak says, Oh, please don't. Not me. Sisera's army must have been quite impressive. She says, Fine. What he actually says is, I'm not going to go up to do the battle unless you come with me. And she says, Fine. But you will not receive the glory from this battle. Rather, a woman will receive the glory from this battle. And it will not be Deborah. It will be someone else named Jael. And so he takes... 10,000 men and 900 chariots of iron up Mount Tabor. If you've ever seen Mount Tabor, it's this mountain just kind of coming out of the earth. And it comes up, and they came down from that mountain, and they met Sisera in battle, and they destroyed his army. And Sisera was knocked off of his horse, the commander of the Canaanite army, and he fled on foot. And he was fleeing on foot across the Jezreel Valley, this big valley I was saying, he came to a tent. And the tent was owned by a man and his wife was named J.L. And you'll see that story, the conclusion of that story, in verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of J.L., the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And J.L. came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn in aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Have no fear. So he turned aside 
into her tent. And she covered him with a rug to, to hide him from the Israelites. And he said to her, pray, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him some milk to drink. Now, ladies, when you give a tired man milk, what happens? He falls asleep. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple till it went down into the ground as he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. So, and behold, it's one of my, it's, so, it's a beautiful story. And behold, <laughs> as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went out to her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. Now, I'm going to read you a little, there's this beautiful hymn, beautiful hymn following this text that Deborah sang. And I encourage you to read that text. Don't have time to do the whole thing. It is a beautiful hymn about the great work of God. I'm going to ask you a question after I finish the next story. Why is it? Why is it that these two stories are referenced in the words of Elizabeth? And why do I say they're referenced in the words of Elizabeth? Because if you look at chapter 5, verse 24. This is of Judges, of course. Most blessed of women be jail. Huh? You are blessed among women. The same words used by Elizabeth. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Of the tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked water and she gave milk. She brought him curds in a lordy bowl. She put her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera a blow. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. He sank. He fell. He lay still at her feet. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Hmm? Most blessed, Mary, are you among women. We'll come back and I'm going to ask you why it is that that phrase was used by Elizabeth. Okay? Now, we're going to turn and we're going to go to Judith chapter 13. Judith chapter 13. Again, I have to give you a little lay of the land because we don't have time. We're going to run out of time. So look, here's what was going on. This story was most likely written in about the 3rd century B.C. After the return from the Babylonian exile, the names of the, figure, of the people that are involved are false names or, say, um, apocryphal names, okay? To probably to cover up for this woman who did this. There was a military invader. It was a time of conquest of Israel. A number of nations were in control of the people of God at the time. And there was a military leader that came to the north just up in the same area, basically, near Megiddo, in this plain of the Jezreel Valley where all these battles took place. And he went up to conquer the Israelites. But he was warned. He did a couple battles and conquered them. But before he conquered the city... It's in the story, he was warned by one of the other leaders in the area, do not go against the Israelites unless they are unfaithful to their God. Because if they are faithful to their God, you will lose. Guaranteed. So, the army surrounded the city, and after five days, they cut off the water, so they cut off the water, and the people couldn't even have water to drink. And the leaders of the people said, we are going to prepare ourselves and fast for five days. And if God does not save us, we will turn ourselves over to this pagan horde. Judith came into the meeting and said, what are you doing? God will surely work His work of salvation. And He is going to do it through me. She began fasting. She prepared herself and said that she was an extremely beautiful woman. She prepared herself and she went in to the foreign army and made her way to the leader of the army. You can read the story. It's quite detailed. On the last night she was with them, the man prepared a great feast. His name? Holofernes. Thank you. Holofernes. And he drank strong drink and... 
he became tired. Huh? Sound familiar? Very similar to the story of Jael. Okay, he became tired. He tried to entice her, but she was virtuous and refused. She would not be tempted. She let him fall asleep. And in chapter 13, it tells what she did to save the people of Israel. When evening came, his slaves quickly withdrew, and Bagoas closed the tent from outside and shut out the attendants from his master's presence. And they went to bed, for they were all weary because of the banquet had lasted so long. So Judas was left alone in the tent with Holofernes, stretched out on his bed, for he was overcome with wine. Now Judith had told her maid to stand outside the bedchamber and to wait for her to come out, as she did every day, for she said she would be going out for her prayers. And she had said the same thing to Begoas. So everyone went out, and no one, either small or great, was left in the bedchamber. Then Judith, standing beside his bed, said in her heart, O Lord God of all might, look in this hour upon the work of my hands for the exaltation of Jerusalem. For now is the time to help thy inheritance and to carry out my undertaking for the destruction of the enemies who have risen up against thee. So she went up to the post at the end of the bed against Holofernes' head and took down his sword that hung there. She came close to his bed and took hold of his hair of his head and said, Give me strength this day, O Lord God of Israel. And she struck his neck twice with all her might and severed his head from his body. You know, if you ever thought the Bible was boring... Then she tumbled his body off the bed and pulled down the canopy from the posts. After a moment, she went out and gave Holofernes' head to her maid who placed it in her food bag. She then goes back to her people, tells them what she has done. In verse 17, by verse 15, she pulls out his head and holds it up. Verse 17, all the people were greatly astonished and bowed down to worship God and said to one another, Blessed art thou, our God, who hast brought into contempt this day the enemies of thy people. And Uzziah said to her, O daughter, you are blessed by the Most High God above all women on earth. And blessed be the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth. And Elizabeth uses that phrase twice and twice only in the Old Testament, both times related to a woman, both times when that woman struck down the enemy of the people of God and gave life back to the people. Why is it, turning back to Luke now, turning back to Luke, why is it that Elizabeth uses those words? Go ahead, shout it out. Because of, what about Genesis? Uh, Genesis 3. Because of Genesis 3. Huh? that through the seed of the woman, Satan would be crushed. And he says in Genesis 3, it says, and she will crush your head and will lie in Yeah. Look, Elizabeth knew the stories of the Old Testament and Mary knew them too. They knew the great stories of the works of God and how He exalted His people against the enemy. And notice that verse 42 follows verse 41. And in verse 41, the Holy Spirit descended into the womb of Elizabeth and John leapt with joy. Being filled with the grace of God, sin was shattered. The power of the devil was shattered. And the beginning of the salvation of Jesus Christ was begun at that moment. Jael. Judith, Eve, the women of the Old Testament who all pointed the way, types of the mother of God. Types of the mother of God because it was in them that God begun there, in those stories, the story of salvation that He would bring to fulfillment and conclusion in the womb of Elizabeth and in the womb of the mother of God. St. Irenaeus said, Writing in the second century, he says, Eve was disobedient, for she did not obey when she was, yet she was a virgin. And even as she, having indeed a husband, Adam, but being nevertheless as yet a virgin, having become disobedient, was made the cause of death, both to herself and the entire human race. So also did Mary, having a man betrothed to her, and being nevertheless a virgin, by yielding obedience rather than disobedience, became the cause of salvation both to herself and to the whole human race. 
looking to verse 43 then in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 43. And we've got to go fast because I'm almost out of time and I'm only about halfway through my notes. Okay, so I'm going to just say a few things and give you guys, so you're writing down your notes, you can write them down. Verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed. Now this is, I think, Elizabeth's dig. Because where are they standing right now? They're in Elizabeth's home. And who else is there? Yeah. And blessed, by the way, is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. And now she can proclaim the glory of God, whereas Elizabeth's poor husband has to sit there dumb. Okay? Now, we skipped verse 43, and that takes us to, again, our second part of our time together tonight, which I'm going to do in about five minutes. In order to understand verse 43, in which she says, And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? We have to look back very quickly at verse 35. And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This Greek word is the exact word used in the Old Testament. If you want to go there, you can go there to the book of Exodus, chapter 40. At the end of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle has been set up. Everything's ready to go at Mount Sinai. And it says in chapter 40, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud abode upon it. It overshadowed it. The same word. The glory of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, overshadowed the Virgin Mary just as it had overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant in the tent of meeting in the Old Testament. Which brings us to this second aspect that is absolutely important that we follow. And I have a quotation that I'm supposed to read you. The shadow is a symbol of the presence of God. When Israel was journeying through the wilderness, the glory of God filled the tabernacle, and a cloud covered the Ark of the Covenant. And when God gave Moses the tables of law, a cloud covered Mount Sinai. And also at the transfiguration of Jesus, the voice of God the Father was heard coming out of a cloud. At the moment of the incarnation, the power of God envelops Our Lady an expression of God's omnipotence, the Spirit of God, which according to the account in Genesis, moved over the face of the waters, bringing things to life, now comes down on Mary, and the fruit of her womb will be the work of the Holy Spirit. Mary becomes for us the Ark of the Covenant. And I want to show you again this slide, because I think it'll be helpful. Again, we're talking about this area right to the west of Jerusalem in a town called Ein Karen, There's the town. This is truly the hill country of Judea. Five miles from Jerusalem. If you walk out of Jerusalem, this is the type of country you see. As long as you go in the right direction. In another direction, it's all desert. But it's absolutely gorgeous. You can see this hill country. Jerusalem would be like on that far distant hill. This is the well that Mary traditionally drank from. You can go there and drink the water. Although they put up a sign now that it's not good to drink from it. I drank from it anyways and I'm okay. Well, I think I'm okay anyways. There's the well again, okay? Beautiful, huh? The whole country of Judea. Why do I bring that up now? Because this is, as I said, is about 100 miles or so from Nazareth, about five miles west of Jerusalem. And I want to turn you to our second to last Old Testament reference is 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. While you're finding it, I'm going to start reading. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah, which means the hill country or the hills of Judah. Okay? So David is in this very country, and he's going to take the Ark of the Covenant, and he carries the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, okay, which he's not supposed to do. And it says, And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with all of their might. Right? They were leaping with joy. They were leaping with joy before the ark. 
And when they came, verse 6, to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. The ark was out to fall, and Uzzah puts out his hand, and he's struck dead. Because he was not a Levitical priest, he was not to touch the ark, which ought to tell us something about being careful about the Eucharist, which I don't have time to go into, but maybe during Q&A. And God smote him. In verse 8, And David was angry. Now they're in the hill country of Judea with the Ark of the Covenant, which God overshadowed with the cloud as he overshadowed the Virgin Mary. And they're walking and David is jumping before the Ark like, like John the Baptist who jumps before Our Lady. In verse 8, And David it was angry because the Lord had broken forth upon Uzzah and that place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, How can the Ark of the Lord come to me? How is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth quotes this text because she realizes who Mary is. How is it that the ark of the Lord can come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Abedadom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Abedadom the Gittite for three months. How long did Mary stay? For three months with Elizabeth. And... God blessed Abedadom and all of his household. That's a biblical language. A family is blessed. What happens? Yeah, they become fruitful. The Ark of the Covenant comes to Elizabeth and suddenly the babe in her womb is quickened, given life in her womb. And she's now to bear the forerunner of the Savior of the world. Later, David then takes the Ark up to Jerusalem, dancing and singing before the Lord. Uh, We're going to go back to Luke real quick. And I'll just say this, and I'll give you the biblical references if you're writing them down, but we're not going to turn there. So we're at Luke chapter 1, verse 42. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She exclaimed, again, in the Old Testament, five times this word of exclamation is used. Five times and five times only. And every single time it is used, it is in reference to the Levitical choir singing before the Ark of the Covenant. In that Ark were three things. What were they? The Ten Commandments, the will of God for His people. In the womb of the new Ark of the Covenant is the incarnate will of God Himself. Okay? Ah, the rod of Aaron. The rod of Aaron, which blossomed forth when there was a struggle for authority among the people of Israel. God said, take a staff from each one of the tribes and write their name on it. And on the tribe of the Levites, write Aaron. And they put them in the temple and they brought them out and Aaron's rod had blossomed. They had come alive while the others had remained dead. Jesus, Jesus is chosen by God from among His brethren. Okay? And the third thing, the manna, which was in the ark, by which the people of God ate, in the desert and were saved. Jesus Himself in John chapter 6 says, God gave you manna in the desert and your forefathers still died. I will give you the true manna which comes from heaven, the bread of life, the Holy Eucharist. Jesus is the incarnate contents of the Ark of the Covenant. Mary herself is that new Ark of the Covenant. And I'm out of time, but i got to look and see... I didn't even get to the Magnificat, which is a problem, I know. I will share this quotation with you, and then during Q&A, for those that can stay around, I will go through and mention just a few things about the Magnificat. Of course, it's a four or five part Bible study on its own. St. Bernard. The mother and mistress of wisdom speaks few words, but each is filled with great depths of meaning. We read that the mother of God spoke seven times Seven words filled with wisdom, as if to show mystically that she is filled with the sevenfold graces. Twice she spoke to the angel Gabriel, twice to Elizabeth. She also spoke to her son twice, once in the temple and once at the marriage feast. There's also the story of her speaking to the attendant at the same story. On all these occasions, she spoke very little, except for the one time when the praises of God poured forth from her lips in thanksgiving. Then she said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. But note that here she was speaking to God and not to men. Thank you very much for your time this evening. I hope you can stay around for a little Q&A.
I hope you stay around. I'll tell you why. Because just like the story of Jael and the story of Judith, the Magnificat is not invented for the first time by the mother of God. It is a reference to a particular woman of the Old Testament. But if you want to know who that woman is, you're going to have to go get yourself a glass of wine, and we're going to come back together in about two to three minutes. I want you to turn back to the Old Testament again. Finally, last time, to 1 Samuel. I encourage you very much. Many of you I know are here tonight because you pray the rosary. I encourage you that next time this mystery comes around, get out your Bible, put down your rosary for just a moment, and read the story of Jael. And the next time, read the story of Judith. And the last time, read the story of Hannah. And then, you'll have something good to meditate on. Because then you'll understand what's going on in the story of the visitation. Okay? Alright, 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm sorry. I'll tell you the story very quickly. A man of Israel. He has two wives. Not a good idea. I don't know how they did it. It's amazing. One wife has children. The other wife, Hannah, does not. She is barren. Every year when they go to the temple, the gentleman gives his wife who has children more to offer. And Hannah has nothing to offer. And the prophet finds her there weeping in the temple. Verse 9. Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah arose. Now Eli the priest was sitting at the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and praying to the Lord, wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me and not forget thy maidservant, but will give to thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and said to her, Stop that. And she explains herself. And then, okay, now what happens? As you know, when there's a barren woman of the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, who's holy, look out. Okay? Because she is going to give birth. She becomes pregnant. And she's going to give birth to the great prophet Samuel. Samuel. Who slept in the temple next to the ark. Like Jesus, huh? who sleeps in the, in the arms of his mother, the ark of the covenant. Hannah returns with the child and dedicates him to the temple and leaves him there to live in the temple. And in chapter 2, verse 1, we begin to read, just as we saw that hymn of Deborah and we saw the hymn of Jael, of Judith. We will also see here a hymn on the lips of Hannah, prophetess. Chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah also prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. Look at verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are rich have become poor. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. And so forth. You can read this on your own. Mary is not doing an exact quotation of this, is she? She's quoting it from memory. And the reason she's able to quote this from memory in the Magnificat is because this is most likely, I would say, without a doubt, the very story that she was meditating upon as she walked from Nazareth to the whole country of Judea. The story of Hannah, who had no hope of having children, as Mary had had no hope of bearing the Messiah. She had made a sacrifice, and God blessed her for her faith. And through that blessing, a child was born. And as Samuel, we become the one who would restore Israel, so Jesus would be the one to bring His people back to God. We didn't talk too much about Jael and Judith, but you know, you can understand the context of the story. So much from beautiful, pious Elizabeth. Elizabeth understands the truth of the matter. And that God is going to work a wonder which will destroy the power of the devil.
that the actions of salvation are not something that all the time look pretty to the outer world. They're beautiful to God. But Satan will be struck down by Jesus Christ and by the Virgin Mary, just as he worked through jail and Judith. Okay? Okay. You have a few questions? Yes, Mary. So, with the two women who meet, both of them pregnant, one of them basically praising the other and recognizing and, and hearkening back to all these Old Testament realities, is this not the great moment, the great divide between the Old Testament and New Testament, between yeah. what is to come and what has been? In other words, the defining moment? Absolutely. In fact, we would say that John the Baptist and the Mother of God, for that matter, are the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Even though they're written about in the New, the New Testament or New Covenant is much more than the pages of your Bible. And for those Protestants who are here or are watching online, I hope you know by now I love the Bible. Love the Bible is the Word of God. But those words written on the page are fulfilled in the living, resurrected person of Jesus Christ who is the New Testament. He is the New Covenant. And Mary and John the Baptist are the ones who literally reach, they're the bridge, right? They reach over and hand us Him who is the New Covenant. And you're right. It's the meeting point, right? Between John the Baptist and our Lord. But I will say this. Be careful. Because you made a great divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You risk cutting them off from each other. And you cannot understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. And for that matter, you cannot understand the Old Testament. You cannot understand the story of Jael and Judith unless you read what God's actually going to fulfill and do in the person of Jesus Christ and the Mother of God. Other questions? Oh, I thought I was going to go off easy tonight. Go ahead. <laughs> Could you comment on Mary traveling all the way to visit Elizabeth alone? Sure. She was a young woman. And uh, I was reading one commentary that, and I think they might have had a good point. I never thought about it before. But first of all, she would have had to have the permission of her parents, Joachim and Anna. But also that she must have had an escort with her, somebody with her. You know, we don't know. We don't know. But I think that the um, Proto-Evangelium of St. James tells us a little bit more about Mary and her age. She was a teenager, a young teenager by tradition. And I think maybe a good reference might be David, the young David, the shepherd, who was in this hill country, right? Shepherding the sheep when he was called to be king of Israel. And he wrote the Psalms. And we know that Psalm um, that we say at the funerals. The Lord is my shepherd, right? And we read that, and we, oh, it's so much it's so beautiful in reference to this person who has passed away. But the original context was that David was a little boy, and he was out in these hills, and you can imagine the sun setting, and like any little boy, he must have been scared in the shadows of death. And so Mary also, I think, in this journey, pondering these things in her heart, out making her way from Nazareth to visit her cousin, it must have been a life-changing experience for her to make that journey. These are good things to question and meditate on. What it was like. What was she thinking about? So it gives us a little bit of content for our meditations for our prayer life. Melanie, go ahead. Melanie has a, has a question. And you'll have to forgive me because I miss some of it with what I'm doing over there. But did you address the Proto-Evangelium of St. James, is it? Yeah. I mean, you had said I, before that that was important, but I, wasn't, I didn't hear anything about yeah, it. Yeah, I didn't actually end up saying a whole lot about that. But um, you can learn more about the early life of the Mother of God, about the conception of St. Anne, and that whole story in the Proto-Evangelium of St. James, which is not part of the inspired Word of God, but it also has held a prominent place in the tradition of the church is quite influential liturgically. So we don't want to just throw it out altogether as it did hold quite an important place in the tradition of the church. And maybe what we'll do is we'll post that text on our blog. I will also post on our Learning Center the whole Magnificat with every reference to the Old Testament because every single line is a quotation, not perfect, but it's close, because Mary knew these things by heart, okay? And not perfectly, but she knew them. She had internalized them. And so as she goes and exclaims 
the glory of God, she uses the things she knows at her disposal. And just as each one of us has the saints we have a special devotion to or a special story in the Bible that has special meaning to us, here we learn in the Magnificat who was Mary's patron saint? It was the prophetess Hannah. It was the story of Hannah that she meditated on. And the other women of the Old Testament. And the Psalms. As you'll see, the Magnificat's like a string of quotations from the Psalms. References to the Psalms. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy and so forth. She internalized these things in her prayer life. I'll finish with a quotation from Pope John Paul II. In her exaltation, Mary confesses that she finds herself in the very heart of this fullness of Christ. She is conscious that the promises made to the fathers, first of all to Abraham and to his posterity forever, is being fulfilled in herself. She is thus aware that concentrated within her, as the mother of Christ, is the whole salvific economy in which from age to age is manifested He who, as the God of the covenant, remembers His mercy. Thank you very much. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.